You're listening to Trouble with the Truth, a podcast about journalists in danger and the stories that get them in trouble. I'm your host, Lana Istimirova. In 2016, the world was shaken by the revelations contained in the Panama Papers. We learned about the complex ways in which offshore firms hid the money of the rich and powerful. Presidents, prime ministers, businessmen, actors in opaque offshore companies. An army of journalists worked tirelessly to go through terabytes of information and break it down for us. Not only did the leak reveal all the complex ways in which oligarchs and corrupt politicians stashed away their often illegally acquired fortunes, it also lifted the curtain on the European firms and actors that helped them with this process. According to The Guardian, 1,924 UK-based firms and individuals were involved in schemes that funneled their clients' money offshore. And the Panama Papers are just the tip of the iceberg. In their new report, the Foreign Policy Center analyzes the way in which London is implicated in transnational corruption schemes through its financial and legal firms. It specifically focuses on the way this affects independent journalists working to expose corruption in their home countries and its links to the UK. The report documents the way in which the subjects of these investigations use deep pockets and British law to impede and silence them. They use what is known as SLAP legislation, short for Strategic Lawsuit Against Public Participations, a powerful silencing tool used to drag media outlets and journalists through British courts, hoping it will stop their work or bankrupt them in the process. The report documents the work of brave journalists who continue their work, despite the threat of legal action. This week, I had a chat with the editor of the report, Susan Coftry, and she began by unpacking the term slap, what it means, and why is it so damaging for journalists? Uh, strategic lawsuits against public participation, which are often referred to as slaps, are legal actions that are not necessarily taken in, in order to take a journalist to court where the truth might be brought to light, but rather they're used to intimidate, to induce fear, tire and and basically consume the financial and psychological resources of the target. A common hallmark of slaps is a sort of imbalance of power. So they're often initiated by people who have significant resources. They're able to put to um, starting these kind of legal actions, not necessarily with strong legal grounds, but in order to uh, ultimately stop reporting um, about their apparent wrongdoing and um, prevent it from coming out if, if it's uh, in response to perhaps a right to reply request or um, get uh, information taken down subsequent to being published. Um, so the target is very much to remove information from, um, from the public domain. In 2013, um, English and Welsh laws actually reformed to address the issue of so-called libel tourism, but the cases continue to grow. How did the UK become an international courtroom that punishes investigative journalists? Yeah, it's very interesting that um, the UK often features in in legal cases where the journalist isn't necessarily a a UK citizen or resident in the UK. 
Um, and I think part of the reason that the UK remains an attractive jurisdiction for slap actions, as it is seen to be an easier jurisdiction to win libel cases than other parts of the world, and and particularly um, because it's more difficult and more challenging, there's the hope that perhaps journalists who are on the receiving end of, of vexatious legal threats or um, legal action will perhaps just give up rather than um, continue to, to, to fight the case. Um, there's a few reasons for that. The burden of proof in a UK libel case, and libel is, is most frequently the, the, the law used uh, for slap actions, but it's not only, but it is most common. Um, but the burden of proof in a UK libel case is on the defendant. So it's it's not up to the plaintiff to prove uh, that the statement in question is false. Rather, the defendant must prove that the statement is true, which is actually often a far harder task than it might at first appear, because it's, it's judges who decide the legal meaning that the journalists then have to prove. Um, another reason is that fighting a defamation case in the UK is usually a lengthy and quite expensive process. Potential legal costs can spiral into the thousands, if not millions, and some of it is not necessarily recoverable, even if you if you do win. Um, they, so you can understand why many often cash-strapped media outlets would rather comply with the demand to change or remove content than face legal action, even if they know um, what they have written is is true, because it, it does put the the whole financial stability um, of their media outlet on the line. So yes, despite the legal reform in 2013, which was aimed at reducing the impact of libel tourism, it nevertheless holds that you do not have to be British um, or a resident in the UK full time to bring a case. It's only necessary to demonstrate a connection that could establish your standing. Um, So that could be a home or a business um, and that the article in question was read in the UK. And given, you know, it's relatively easy to show that, um, a few IP addresses, especially if most things are published online these days, a few IP addresses access that article in the UK. And it's very easy uh, to buy property in the UK um, and actually even effectively buy residency and citizenship through investment visas if you're wealthy enough. Looked at in that way, the bar can actually be quite low for bringing a case uh, here. Um, And then also because of the common practice in British journalism of offering a right to reply, it's it's quite easy for um, individuals um, who are the subject of an article um, to put these legal challenges in place prior to publication. So if they're successful um, in achieving that aim, the public wouldn't even necessarily know um, about the information or even the fact that a legal challenge has taken place. So it, it has the possibility to create just a complete vacuum of information, both about whatever was happening in the first place, whatever the journalist was investigating, and then even the fact that they were challenged on it. Thank you for breaking this down so succinctly. I think many of our listeners will be confused about how is it possible to sue someone when they haven't even set foot on the British soil? And your report has some fantastic testimonies of the journalists writing about slaps or being affected by it. Uh, can you talk me through some examples that really stayed with you? Yes, I mean, there, there are definitely a few cases. I think the issue of slaps um, as a whole has really come to prominence since the murder of Daphne and the Caruana Galizia, a Maltese investigative journalist who was assassinated in 2017. And at the time of her murder, she had 
something like 47 open uh, cases, slap cases against her. And um, I think the scale of that is quite shocking. And many of those cases are still still open uh, that her family are, are fighting after her death. And I think Daphne was someone who was an independent journalist. She was working on her own. She was self-publishing. I mean, she was also you know, part of some of these other broader journalistic networks. Um, but in Malta, she was working on her own. And to be faced with so many challenges, legal challenges, I think in her own words, I think she said that um, she was being sort of hounded by the politicians and the businessmen that um, that she was investigating. She was being hounded by them in, in retreat, basically. They, they had nowhere else to go, so they were this was a, a recourse they were, they were taking to, to just to exhaust her, uh, her mentally and, 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 and financially. And I think that's, again, speaking to the hallmark of, of vexatious letters and, and slap actions is that it's just to really overwhelm journalists and make it very difficult for them to be able to continue their work because they've got to seek legal advice. They've got to um, find the money for, for legal advice. Uh, it's very stressful. <laughs> um, and I think if uh, if it's also emanating from, from the UK, people understand that the UK libel laws are very strict and um, that the challenge would be very high uh, to fight it. And uh, so therefore, you know, a letter from a UK law firm um, potentially threatening action here is different from, from a letter that might be received somewhere else. I mean, one of the organizations I spoke to part of my research uh, as the Balkans investigative reporting network and um, they set up course for their journalists who work with them specifically on English libel law and that's because they consider it to be such a risk even to journalists who are sitting somewhere else <laughs> far away um, not writing about necessarily anything happening in the UK but the people that they are writing about might be able to establish a standing in the UK which means that they could bring the court case here and be heard and that has happened I mean there's the case of Paul Radu who was pursued through the UK courts um, by an Azerbaijani businessman Paul Radu is the co-founder of the organized crime and reporting project OCCRP uh, they are at the heart of a number of these global investigations into financial crime and corruption, Panama Papers, Paradise Papers, Azerbaijani laundromat. And um, it was this latter one that Paul was taken taken to court in the UK. And it was two years of a pre-trial action before the court was, well, the decision was taken by by the person who was pursuing him to discontinue the case, literally the night before the trial was about to start. Um, and that was last last January. And so you can imagine um, you know, two years of responding to to these these challenges, getting legal support. I know Paul himself has written um, about the experience and how much uh, money they had to raise in order to, to, to fight that. And um, ultimately, the resolution was that uh, the articles were kept uh, online. Um, and there's a disclaimer that was published. Um, but, you know, you could see that as a positive outcome. But nevertheless, um, that took two years and a lot of money to get to that to get to that stage. And that's taken you know, him and other journalists who are involved in, in OCCLP away from other investigations that they could be doing, uh, resources that they could be putting towards that work. So yeah, the, the, the impact can be, can be very high both individually, but then also um, on the wider, you know, that has a ripple effect. 
What's worrying, like you said, is that journalists are being prevented from doing their job because they're trapped in endless lawsuits. They have to constantly raise money to prevent themselves from going broke. And just to add something, uh, you've mentioned Daphne's example and her colleagues now, including Caroline Muscat from the Shift News, face similar challenges. They're being sued and even Daphne Caruana Galicia's foundation that her son set up in an effort to bring her murderers to justice are going through the same thing, unfortunately. They have multiple lawsuits chasing them. There's something else that I'd like to talk about. It's something that you touched upon in your report. So Great Britain boasts about its liberal values and is a great defender of freedom of speech and in, is involved in multiple anti-corruption initiatives as well. So that's on the, on the one hand. And on the other hand, it provides services to corrupt oligarchs and politicians from all over the world who do everything to silence their critics. One of the most staggering examples that I've come across was a decision to sanction 20 Saudi nationals who were involved in the murder of uh, Jamal Khashoggi. And shortly after those sanctions were introduced, the defense minister, Ben Wallace, actually called his Saudi counterpart to apologize for the sanctions that's absolutely bizarre. And my question is, how can these two worlds, these two approaches coexist in one country, in one Western democracy? And do you think that this undermines the UK's effort to protect media freedom? Uh, absolutely. I, I think that's exactly um that kind of contradiction and the juxtaposition of uh, safety of journalists, journalists and anti-corruption was is really at the heart of our our project um, to look at those two parallel efforts and see the interplay between both of them um, as well as the impact that they have. Um, so yes, the UK in 2019 launched a global media campaign together with Canada, um, expressing its intentions to prioritize protection of media freedom globally, uh, which is an admirable aim. And um, you can only be pleased to see that that is an intention. But when you also realize how the country is facilitating the financial crime and corruption of political elites in countries where um, there's very regressive media freedom, you can see that there's a real sort of gap there <laughs> between reality and aspiration and certainly you know the f the financial facilitation is one thing um the fact that the uk has this ability uh, through its it, the way that its financial systems are set up for people to uh, use anonymous shell companies and to launder money and, and things like that but there's also the other side of it and uh, a wider group of enablers um allowing Ill, illicit funds to buy property in the UK, um, to access services such as reputation management companies who um, who often are used to rehabilitate the image of political elites um, in the UK and elsewhere. I mean, Saudi Arabia, you mentioned um, Jamal Khashoggi's case, and um, you know, there's been big efforts uh, to uh, whitewash basically Saudi's, Saudi Arabia's human rights record. Um, by UK um, reputation management companies. And so there is a bit of a disconnect there. And that is exactly what this report on the Unsafe for Scrutiny project is, is trying to, to bring 
to light and sit those against one another and show the interconnectedness of, of, the, of these issues. And if you care about media freedom, then you really need to care about corruption and um, what is being done um, to address um, financial crime in, in the UK. Because corrupt individuals, um, you know, they have a vested interest in making sure that information about their wrongdoing doesn't come to light. Um, and if they have that money, they're able to uh, hire services that, that help suppress journalists and, and broader media freedom. Obviously, there's more tools available to those already operating in, in perhaps a re- regressive media environments. But um, then there are there are other ways, like, for example, vexatious letters and, and slap cases that we've been talking about that are more useful when you're operating in countries where that, where you know, that's, that's a, an easier method to access. And I think the other thing about slaps is that it's often sort of set against a access to justice issue. And I think access to justice and having the ability to defend yourself against spurious claims is absolutely uh, a key feature of a, of a democracy and um, having um, the ability to to have legal services and, and representation is really important. I think what, what we're trying to point out, though, is um, the difference between a genuine desire to do that and uh, taking legal action when there is a, a really clear uh, intent to just shut down reporting about about wrongdoing and um, and prevent public scrutiny of um, of things that are happening. Um, and I think the cases that have played out, some that we've we've already talked about, um, but others that are featured in the report, for example, the case of Claire Rucastle Brown, who's a British journalist but has worked in in Malaysia and um, faced a huge amount of harassment in the UK from faced lawsuits in the UK, but also uh, online trolling, organised. Uh, surveillance campaigns, smear campaigns, and ultimately it was her 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 investigations that have led to arrests um, of the former prime minister, who's now in prison. Um, other people involved in in, in the, the case that she was looking into are on, are on the run from justice. <laughs> so you know, it's we we want to make sure that um, there is that balance there that people you know do have access to justice, but that people who are and particularly those who are gaining money through corruption or are, you know illicit means aren't then able to turn around and use that money um, on various different methods to shut down any scrutiny <laughs> or or investigation of their wrongdoing. And the the power imbalance of that is is really clear because they've got the resources to do it, and often against journalists who who don't have those resources. And I think that was another key aspect of our uh, of our project uh, was trying to understand the scale and scope of it because you do hear about these uh, particular cases like Daphne Caruana Glitzias and, and and Paul Radis and, and Claire's who I've just mentioned, um, but these are people who have had incredible tenacity to continue fighting and taking these through and of course in the very sad case of Daphne losing her life um, but understandably not all journalists are in a position to do that um, financially or, or otherwise and so the first initiative we did was a global survey 63 investigative journalists working on financial crime and corruption in 41 countries to try to better understand um, how much of an issue these these things were and 73% reported um Sorry, 71% of respondents reported experiencing threats and harassment 
and some of that quite quite regularly. Um, you know, they were verbal threats, trolling on social media, uh, written threat. But seventy three percent of them, um, of all the respondents experiencing threats, had received communications threatening legal action. And the United Kingdom was by far the most frequent international source of those threats, almost as high as European Union countries and the United States combined, uh, which is quite shocking, really, when you think about it. And the other question that we asked in our survey was, which of course was global, but it also included UK respondents, was how um, many of them had a link with the UK. At least 61% of the respondents also reported their investigations had uncovered a link directly or indirectly with UK financial and legal jurisdictions. So directly could mean that the money ended up in the UK, whether through property or other services, Mm -hmm. or indirectly through the use of shell companies, routing it through. Obviously, the UK has now officially left the EU and is planning to abandon a lot of its rules and regulations. So in the light of everything that we just discussed, do you think that libel tourism and transnational corruption is likely to get worse after Brexit, or is it too difficult to make these predictions? It's a little bit difficult to to exactly say, um, depending on um, some of the the way that the Brexit uh, negotiations play out in terms of um, whether there's reciprocal um, agreements between countries uh, regarding the outcomes of legal cases. Uh, I think it's a little bit too early to to say. But one thing, yes, is certain that um, that we wouldn't be um, subject to the same EU rules. And uh, there has been a significant effort by a, a huge coalition of NGOs and other civil society organisations across Europe to raise the issue of, of slaps there and um, to push for a potential anti-slap directive, which is which is a great initiative, but unfortunately wouldn't wouldn't have any remit here. So I think that that kind of underscores the need for the UK to look at this issue as a matter of priority and also as as a country um, as a leading source where slaps are emanating from uh, to other countries. Um, and there are examples where um, some parts of the world have looked at this and tried to develop some anti-slap uh, guidance or advice. For example, the UK is still a member of the Council of Europe. And in October last year, uh, the Human Rights Commissioner of the Council of Europe uh, particularly raised the issue of slaps and outlined a three-fold approach which she argues um, is needed in order to form a comprehensive response to counter slaps. And these threefold ideas were around preventing the filing of slaps by allowing early dismissal of such suits. So it doesn't get to the point where journalists really are incurring a significant legal cost and challenge um, before the case might ultimately be dismissed. Um, introducing measures to punish uh, those who are uh, using slaps, um, you know, misusing them, misusing legal action, uh, particularly by potentially reversing the cost of proceedings, um, and then minimizing the consequences of slaps by offering um, practical support to those who are sued. So I think this is something a, a number of organizations are looking at, but it would be great to see others do as well, which is to to look at what are the guidance and the resources that can be offered to journalists that are receiving vexatious legal communication and how they should respond to it. Um, You mentioned earlier about Caroline Muscat and the shift and 
just to say that um, they have taken the approach in in some cases to publish the letters and that they receive as part of their wider public interest reporting. And I think that that is really um, where sort of legally safe to do so very important because it, it, it brings the issue to light. It, it shows that it, it's there. And I think the point I was trying to make earlier was that um, a big issue of this today is that it's been so hidden. I mean, these letters come marked confidential from lawyers and um, journalists you know, try to respond. And, and particularly if they if they take the decision to take the article down on balance, thinking perhaps it's it's just not worth risking the financial sustainability of their organization to to keep a particular article up then then no one knows about it so um yeah i think raising awareness of this issue providing guidance and resources to journalists um and like seeking ways in the uk to limit things like libel tourism but of course libel tourism doesn't well, it doesn't have an impact to journalists who are already based in the uk who face many of these same issues Lots of people in the UK are preoccupied with their day-to-day struggles at the moment. We're in the middle of a global pandemic. Many of us don't know when we'll be eligible for a vaccine and when will life go back to normal. And then we'll probably be facing a global recession and unemployment. In the middle of all this chaos, why do we need to make an argument that slap cases and the UK's role in assisting corrupt individuals is something that people should be paying attention to i think i think there's a there's a lot of answers you you could give there um i mean i I think one silver lining of the of the pandemic is i do think people have turned to the news more than ever because it's their main source of information people want to know what's going on um with the health crisis how their government is responding when vaccines are going to be developed when they're going to be available um, so I do think there is, it has been in some ways, um, of course, a challenge for journalists, but also a moment when uh, I think in a lot of ways the, their their role is as, as acting as a watchdog and providing public scrutiny, accountability and transparency has, has also sort of shone. And so I think there is an understanding that that is, that is beneficial. And in order to do that, they need access to information and resources um, and not to, to, to be limited. Um, I think something that's, that's interesting uh, is during the pandemic in July last year, the UK Parliament's Intelligence and Security Committee released the Russia report, uh, which examines potential aspects of a Russian threat to the UK. And it was fairly damning in its findings that successive governments have welcomed oligarchs and their money um, into the UK and provided them with a means with um, recycling their finance through a London laundromat. And I think that this is kind of one of the first sort of real official recognitions we've seen of that. And yet there's been very little response. There's been no follow-up. And this was tied in with concerns about Russian interference with UK elections, as there obviously has been in other countries as well. And it, I find it very surprising that there hasn't been a follow-up. And, and obviously, the remit of that committee was looking closely at Russia. But I think, actually, you need to look at it more wholesale. And these systems and 
enabling services are utilized by political elites and corrupt interests from all over the world. Um, and if the UK wants to sort of set its stall out now as a, as a global Britain and um, invite business, it needs to uh, really be sure that it has the, the right reputational and business set up for that. So I think it is an interesting time to be examining these issues and to ensure that journalists who, when it comes to financial crime and corruption, have often been the ones uncovering uh, the information that's then subsequently used by law enforcement agencies. So, you know, they, they're a real linchpin in the process. Um, and I think that people and citizens would be concerned if that if that role is diminished and if journalists are unable to to act and to find out things and and bring um, things forward for for public scrutiny. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to go on the Foreign Policy Center website and read the full report. Trouble with the Truth will continue to explore the topic of slaps and their impact on free journalism.